Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. Banking will never return to the way things were done in the past. Continuous disruption is the new norm. The mission is to become more resilient and to benefit from the change that surrounds us. How can banks and credit unions navigate the intentional evolution of financial services while continuing the existing execution of engagement with the consumer? In other words, creating new business models from within what already exists. I'm excited to have Brant Cooper, author of the book Disruption Proof, on the Banking Transform podcast. He will discuss the five elements required for organizations to be able to deal with accelerated change today and in the future. There once was a time when change and disruption was evolutionary. You saw it coming and could prepare accordingly. This is obviously no longer the case. In fact, as mentioned in Brant Cooper's new book, Disruption Proof, change has become more unpredictable, more complex, and certainly more chaotic. Preparing for inevitable disruption requires a brand new mindset. So welcome to the show, Brant. You know, let's start with two very fundamental questions. First, is the pace and degree of business disruption bad? And secondly, can an organization truly become disruption-proof or simply somewhat disruption-ready? Great questions, Jim. Thanks for having me. I, is it bad? Boy, I don't know. I guess I don't, I'm not sure I have a strong opinion on that. It's inevitable. It's the way it is. So I guess depends on whether you're looking at things like, you know, optimistically or pessimistically. I think yeah. that there's, you know, what change brings is opportunity. And so uh, I guess I would put it this way. There's endless opportunities. There's endless opportunities for us to create value in the world, for us to improve what we're working on, to make things better. Uh, but it's also, it's hard. And I'm not sure it's embedded within us to be ready for for that sort of constant change. And then the other part, can you become disruption ready or, or disruption proof? Well, we could be a lot better at it. So, I, you know, I think it's it's it, it's not a bad goal, but uh, no, I don't think so. Because if it's unpredictable, then, uh, you know, just looking at the pandemic, uh, people knew that a pandemic could happen. People knew that a pandemic was likely to happen at some point in time. But I don't think that we really could have been completely prepared to deal with what actually came. So we could be better prepared. Can we be totally prepared? Are we always going to be prepared? No way. You know, and it's interesting because when you look at it, I, I, th- I agree with you. I think it's perspective. You know, your ability to be prepared or willing to look at the opportunities of, of change is really a perception issue and within an organization um, or as an individual. And I think, you know, that's a, a very interesting perspective overall to say, you know, within any disruption, there's something good. We, we saw it that, um, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of people, I wouldn't say benefited from the pandemic, but certainly we adjusted to it accordingly, which is really quite good. You know, and, and then when you think you've caught your breath a little bit from the pandemic, all of a sudden economic uncertainty becomes almost in a certain way more damaging or more frightening than the pandemic did, except from a health perspective. So, you know, what's interesting is one of your early premises in your book is that most businesses don't need to innovate. 
Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Right. So it became very popular 80s, 90s, 2000s that companies needed to do breakthrough innovation or disruptive innovation. And this was really brought to the fore by Clayton Christensen, who whom I you know, respect a lot his work. But I think that era is over, to be honest. I think that if you're not a technology company, you don't really need to worry about you yourself, your organization doing breakthrough or disruptive innovation. Uh, I, most companies don't need to invent new things. They just need to deal with new technology inside their own processes and and uh, when interacting with customers and updating their products and those type of things. So, so I think that the way people understand innovation, most companies just aren't required to do that. I think incremental change is fine. And I think that an innovation mindset is totally key. And all of these same organizations must have an innovation mindset. It's just that what they're producing is not what many would call, quote unquote, innovation. You know, it's interesting because in the banking world, I, I think the way I look at it is that organizations trying to do that that next big thing innovation, it becomes way too slow. I mean, as I mentioned to you before the podcast, I was fortunate enough to visit Shenzhen China and, and a company called WeBank, which is the biggest digital bank in the world. And they thrived on iterative innovation. Basically, they took great pride on the fact that they went from ideation to implementation in 14 days. Well, you can't create a big, you know, blast innovation in 14 days. But that iterative process is really quite beneficial to an organization. You also discussed in that whole concept of innovation that organizations don't necessarily benefit from developing a separate part of an organization that is that new innovative division or organization. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I think that uh, I, I think that this came out of the Great Recession where entrepreneurialism boomed and startups became very hip again. And I think a lot of organizations said, you know, hey, we need that. And so they formed these innovation labs and these innovation teams. And again, I think that they were, I think that they were assigned the task of doing breakthrough innovation. And so they, you know, they go into their canvases and they're looking at all the different boxes and they're trying to figure out, well, how we might we change this aspect of our business model to prepare ourselves for five or 10 years down the road. And I just, I don't think it's the job of, I, I don't think that they're gonna able to do it. I, I think that they're, the idea that a company can assign four or five teams, uh, put them in a lab and say, okay, go figure this stuff out, uh, really flies in the face of what's actually going on in the economy where you have literally thousands of startups trying to figure out what that next big thing is. And so there's just no way that I don't care what the budget is, that four or five teams are going to go figure out what the future holds related uh, compared to thousands of startups, most of which are going to fail uh, what they're trying to go and figure out. And so I think the very premise of those labs was wrong. And I think a lot of companies understood that very quickly. And so those labs did what we called is you know, innovation theater. And so what they're really showing off is, you know, the number of squirt guns they have, not the, the the number of patents that they've developed. And a matter of fact, there's a very large European bank that had one of the best innovation labs 
that I've that I ever saw. And it was very it was very hip. It was very glitzy on their, you know, fifth floor or something like this. And and, you know, they interacted with startups and and they had their open floor plan and all the rest. And yet, meanwhile, I was also a business customer to some of their back end systems. And those back end systems were 30 years old and clunky and hard to use and didn't really provide me any value. Matter of fact, we had to quit that whole thing with that with that particular bank. And so to me, that was really when it dawned on me is that these companies actually aren't focused on improving their efficiency or their va- the value creation or any of these things that really is what the word innovation means. Instead, they're just kind of showing off this this lab. And so, again, yeah. I think the, the mindset is important. Uh, they need to face down uncertainty and they have to try to figure out how to improve. And, and what you're talking about in China, that continuous iteration, that becomes your competitive advantage as opposed to hoping that you're going to invent something down the road. Well, it's interesting, too, because the continuous iteration, especially in banking, becomes somewhat easier to absorb mentally and in in your gut. What happens also is that when we see organizations split their organizations, what tends to happen becomes us versus them. Uh, my wife was in retail, and retail was notorious for moving from store-based to digital. And then they became enemies of each other, thinking that one was going to unwind the other, when in fact they could coexist, and, and in fact better to coexist. We already we see organizations right now still today that continue to divide or not integrate both parts of the, you know, the good and bad, the uh, – the living in the dead. Um, and what happens is in some organizations, the big monolith um, existing or legacy organization pretty much squashes the innovation side because it's a threat to their existence in many cases. You know, it, you know, it's interesting too, in the banking industry especially, there's a thought that you can almost invest your way into modernization. When you're looking at digital transformation, is it about technology or is it something bigger than that? Well, so the technology is important, but there's not a lot of uncertainty around around the technology, which I I think is why people gravitate towards the technology side of things, because it's it's very scientific, to be honest. And and if especially if you're you're buying the technology from another company, it's pretty solid. It's been tested. And so then you have your own processes for integrating that technology into your products. And and, that, and that's sort of really what digital transformation is, as well as like in the banking example I gave, updating your, your systems and processes, your back office functions. But I think that what's ignored often when we start going down this technology path is the human side of it. So it's understanding what are the what are the needs of our customers and different stakeholders, customers, users? Uh, what what are their needs and how do we best satisfy those needs? So I think a, a, banking is always such a great example because I think that they cover sort of this wide range of legacy plus trying to be on the cutting edge of technology. And you can see a lot of people in the financial sector now going like, well, you know, this blockchain is coming. We should really figure out how to leverage blockchain. It's going to, you know, bi- let's build a blockchain app. Or, right. And so should you be aware of blockchain and what what that te- technology might do and what startups are doing and what venture capitalists are investing in? Yeah, you better be aware of it. Do you have to actually go and apply it the next couple of years? 
No. Do you ever have to apply it? Well, only if it actually allows you to address the needs of your customers better than your existing technology. And so being aware of those type of things coming down the pipe is super important. But but when we focus on just the technology, I, we have to go build something blockchain, then we're, we're totally ignoring what are the needs of our customers. And that's really what should be driving organizations is what are the needs that we can address and that we're best at addressing uh, that our competitive advantage gives us uh, a, a step ahead of anybody else, including startups that might be building some sort of app. You have to leverage your your strengths in addressing your customer needs. And at some point in time, that maybe includes cutting edge technology. You know, it's interesting. You 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 one of the foundations of your book is that you you introduced the importance for organizations to be rad, uh, resilient, aware, and dynamic. Um, you've already mentioned how important it is to be aware and have an awareness not only of what your customer needs are, but what your capabilities as an organization are. How, when you talk about the resilient and dynamic part within the context of awareness, what exactly are you talking about there? And how do organizations become more resilient, aware, and dynamic? Right. So resilient is an interesting word. I always it always brings to mind to me the uh, a palm tree in a in a stormy environment, yeah. right? So it's it's roots are super strong, clinging to the you know the the cliff or the 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 hillside, uh, and there's a lot of strength there. Uh, yet when the storm comes, it's able to flex and bend in the wind. And so I think that organizations, large existing, you know, legacy organizations have a lot of core capabilities, differentiation, uh, expertise that sort of establishes that strength. Um, yet in the, in a world of continuous disruption, and, you know, just to be clear by that disruption, I don't mean just startups creating new technology. I, I mean things like the pandemic and supply chain issues and ransomware attacks and the big quit and all of these things that just tend to ripple across our economy endlessly nowadays. So you have to be flexible in order to weather the storm. And so that's really what the resiliency is. The dynamic side is, and this is what helps you become resilient is that you have to build the capability of change into the organization. And so if you're aware, if you are aware of changes that are going on, you were in China in 2020, uh, January of 2020, if you start to become aware of Chinese factories closing and uh, these other things that were going on there before it had hit the West, that awareness actually is perhaps an opportunity and a, and a, and, but it, it's, it's also something that you could bring back just to, to help your organization. But once you have that new information, you have to be willing to change. So if you can imagine, you know, Nokia in 2015 has a five-year plan for the, the handsets that they're going to manufacture. 2017, the iPhone comes out. 2018, the iPhone takes over the world. And 2019, 2020, your Nokia is still producing the handsets that were in your five-year plan. So that's a problem, right? So we have to be build this ability to take action when we've learned something new. 
So, you know, you talk within that whole concept of being a rad organization that you have to have the five E's of disruption. You have to have empathy, exploration, evidence, equilibrium, and ethics. We can certainly have a podcast over every single one of those those E's. <laughs> yes. um, which one, if you were to prioritize, and I don't know if you can, because, you know, I could make a case on anyone you picked that another one's more important, but what would you rank these or how would you put these in the context of each other? Yeah, so so uh, the five E's are what I describe as the behaviors that need to happen all across the organization. So it sort of gets out of that silo mindset that we were talking about earlier for innovation. And so I think that the top priority to me and maybe it's just because I love it. Maybe this is a biased answer, but it, it's exploration. And so I think that the exploration is sort of that innovation mindset that I was talking about, right? We're facing yep. uncertainty. So we have to let go of how we did things yesterday uh, and go learn how to become optimized again. Go learn how to solve the problems. Go learn what the customer needs are and how they've changed. And so this exploration behavior, which is, incorporate some of the empathy and running experiments and leveraging insights plus data as the evidence. So they, they all start connecting up. Um, but it's really that this, this idea that, that exploration is really going to make us more efficient in our execution. And so there's sort of these innovation memes that again, I think came out of really the heart of the industrial age where an organization really was supposed to just execute, execute, work harder. You know, the moment you uh, ran into troubles, it's, it's uh, you know, do a bunch of layoffs and just kind of push everybody to execute a little bit harder. And yet if you're, if you're in a period where, where change is constant, executing harder is actually fail. You're going to fail, right? So if right. you, if you try to execute through uncertainty, you're going to fail. And so you have to build in this learning mode, this exploration mode before you just rely on the execution. And the amount of uncertainty that you face dictates how much exploration you need to do. So if you actually have to go and update your marketing plan or, or trying to find a new market segment, then maybe the uncertainty is relatively low. But if you're actually trying to figure out, again, how you're going to leverage technology to create new products, then your your uncertainty is is larger, so the amount of exploration that you do is larger, and so it's not that everybody needs to throw away their execution engine and just go and explore. It's creating that balance of exploration and execution, and that exists all across the enterprise. It's not one group's job to do exploration. Everybody has to do it wherever they face uncertainty. Well, it's interesting too. In in the book, you 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 talk about all five of these, and it's interesting because in each one of them, it really focuses to a degree on listening skills as opposed to the doing skills. You know, we, as you said, we we tend to do things for the sake of doing things. If we keep moving, we'll be okay. When sometimes sitting back and listening and being aware, uh, be it empathy and and evidence and equal and ethics, even. Um, you're in a better position to be resilient, to be ready, um, as it were, for the change that's happening. And I think, you know, if we look at the pandemic simply as an example of a time when those people that did best probably increased their awareness skills to say, you know, what is going on? 
and how can I adjust to it as opposed to simply being worried about what's going on and, and continually running faster? Uh, you know, what's interesting, too, and I think you bring this up in the book pretty well, is that these are not just top down traits. This is not just something that is talked upon on high to say you have to have empathy, you have to explore. You have to, it's really also somewhat bottom up traits as well. Correct. Yeah, I think it's I think the the, the bottom up is is super important. So I think that the old legacy organizations tend to be hierarchical command and control. I think most of these leaders now understand uh, that we're kind of in a different world. Uh, and so they want change, but they tend to implement the change sort of in that same old school way. And you can't really get change behavior by top-down mandate. You actually have to start bottoms up. So you need the top to buy in, they, they say you got to fund it, you got to get training, you got to do these things that support the change that you want to see. But but the actual change that happens, and in, in, in my case, I think in my book, represented by those five E's, you have to practice, you have to learn it, you have to practice it, you have to practice it over and over again, and you become better. And you actually start what I call training up <laughs> managers yeah. that actually are are managing teams that are operating in this way. They have to new, uh, learn new skills. And so you have to invest in that. And so I think it's, uh, I, I think it totally is, is bottoms up, but it all, it's sort of a pincer move. You need the top down as, as well. Um, and again, I, I actually think most leaders understand that. I just think that they, they, you know, they often hire the same big consulting firms that actually are facing the same exact issues as they are. And so they have to, uh, it's hard for them to, it's easy for them to grok at, at a conceptual level. I think it's hard to implement. Um, and there's no difficult, there's no doubt about it. It, it is, it is difficult. Well, you know, and, and it's something that I, I look at more and more for the banking industry in that, you know, we, we hire trainees and then we do rotation to have them learn the way we do things, which, which seems to be counterproductive in a sense where you go, you know, how are you going to get new ideas? And if you keep on showing people how we've done things in the past, but success is kind of like the enemy of this whole process, isn't it? Because until you're not successful anymore, there's not the pain of not doing change. So, you know, you have a situation that, you know, the banking industry, you know, from one institution to another, haven't had very many down years. They've had lower years, but not down years, not years, certainly not years they haven't made money. As a result, there's there's leadership that says, guys, why break it? It's not broken. You know, why fix it? It's not broken. And that creates its own challenges, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I, and and uh, you know, we've wor we've worked for with uh, some some banks, and some of them uh, sort of. I think a lot of them recognize the need for moving fast and this agility and that sort of thing. But what was in always interesting to me that I observed is, especially the wealth management side of banks couldn't care less about what we were up to. You know, if, as long as you're making money hand over fist, the last thing you're going to worry about it is that sort of change. Oh, yeah. um, but on the other hand, the, you know, the early adopters, the leaders, the ones that are going to be paving the way uh, will get that they can start uh, adapting and moving quicker. You know, Capital One is another company that I think it invested in that sort of change. And you can look at uh, even the quality of, 
maybe this is a little bit old, this story, but I think that the the quality and the, the ability to roll out a good mobile apps in the banking industry was not consistent across the industry. You definitely had those uh, banks that actually did a great job with their mobile app and, and those that were sort of, you know, it took them a while to catch up. But that's also a great example of digital transformation, right? That mobile technology has been around forever. Yep. And so again, some of the companies are able to go like, okay, we're gonna adopt this digital te technology and that's gonna put us ahead of the field. And then you had other ones that are going, oh, okay, I guess we gotta do it now too. You know, it's funny, it's funny, Brent, that um, when we do research in the banking industry, we ask, one of the questions we ask is, can you digitally open new accounts? And 80, 85% say yes. And then we dig a little bit deeper to say, okay, are you opening accounts digitally or are you doing things in a digital way? And we find there's a vast difference. You know, a 15-minute process of opening a new account on a mobile app is not digitally. It is simply doing things on a digital platform, what you used to do on a branch platform. It's not it's certainly not where it needs to be. You know, it, it's interesting. When you look at organizations globally, what organizations, knowing that, you know, a year from now, we may look back and say, boy, were we wrong on this. But what organizations right now do you think are really positioned well for what could be just more and more change going forward? Yeah, well, so just straight from the the banking industry, to me, uh, the organization that was sort of leaps and bounds but, uh, ahead of others was ING in Europe. And uh, they really took the, the lean innovation stuff that we taught them, as well as some of the agile principles. They took them seriously and, and really reorganized their whole bank, the whole structure of the organization in order to be truly more you know closer to customers and this includes both retail and wholesale uh but they were truly customer responsive and they were very fast at adapting and uh and i think there's a couple of stories in the book about how it not everywhere but a couple of countries in particular they were able to respond to uh to their customers during the pandemic extraordinarily fast and yep. so it, one of the fun things about the book, to be honest, Jim, is the it's very it's very unusual for a business book to be able to say, listen, this is what this is our hypothesis on what you should be doing and and actually be able to then look several years later at, OK, here's the organizations that did that and actually benefited when they ran into a disruption. And right. ING is actually one of them that implemented, you know, this empathy development and running experiments and understanding customers deeply and leveraging evidence and being agile. They did that, you know, started in the mid, mid 2000 teens, whatever, whatever you call those years. Uh, and so when the pandemic hit, they were able to respond uh, pretty darn quickly. Uh, what's interesting too, is that like a lot of, large companies, they looked to the digital leaders to try to get the human side of digital transformation. So they looked at Spotify and Amazon and Google and Zappos and some of these companies that actually talk about the the how teams work, the dynamic part of it and how they move quickly because those 
institutions like ING recognized that there was a human side, that the technology itself wasn't going to suddenly make a company digital, uh, as, as you put it so well with that, that mobile app. Um, and so I think that uh, ING is number one. I think that there's probably, uh, you know, there's uh, in other sectors, there was Gerber Technologies that I mentioned in, in the book. There's a company called Humanetics that's doing work like that now. Uh, so I, it's it's hard for me to know. You know, Roche Roche has been uh, yeah very active in this in this realm. A lot of it really driven by digital transformation. I mean, it's so funny to me. We we started this converse, conversation about innovation labs, and one of the questions I I ask. I'm writing a blog post about this is. Why did the innovation labs not lead the digital transformation efforts of their companies? I mean, to me, that is sort of the the hallmark failure of yep. innovation labs. They should have been the ones that were seeing it, implementing it, pushing it. And yet most companies ha- have now sort of accelerated into the digital transformation side of the business. And it's not using their innovation labs. That's a great example because I, I know a couple of very large financial institutions that said that their innovation labs were nothing more than showcases for the investor public. It, you know, the real innovation was done within the brand system in back offices that were working to transform the organization from within as opposed to a show, showcase. You know, and, and it, it's interesting because sometimes those organizations that are very big do it well because they have money, but but it's still a mindset. I mean, I look at what Bank of America has done with Erica, their 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 digital engagement platform, and some of the other things they've done. Sure, they have a lot of money, but the reality is, if you look at Bank of America over the, not only the pandemic but back to two thousand and nine and eight, they were the organizations that did the best um, from a, a profitability and from a readiness standpoint because that was their mindset, not just because they could invest their way out of it. It certainly had helped. But, um, you know, it's also, you talk about, you know, talk about legacy organizations. You you discuss in your book the importance of looking backwards within your own existing organization before charging forward. The the don't, you know, what is it? Don't uh, leave the baby for the bathwater, whatever the, the saying is, that uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, that, that you also have to look, at what your existing organization is as part of that whole being being ready for disruption. How why is that so important? Well, I, I think that there's I think that there's often a DNA that exists inside these older organizations that a lot of the you know and more recent employees going back, you know, probably several decades now, but are unaware of. And uh, so I remember doing a uh, a talk at at Corning, and and I was waiting in in one of their lobbies uh, before I was doing the talk. And I looked at the the posters. I looked at the history of running experiments. I I looked at the history of actually failing when they you know sort of assumed that a technology was going to be leverageable in a particular way, and they were wrong. But they were able to pivot and use the technology in a in a different market. And I was just sitting there and I ended up using it in my talk because it was just mind blowing to me that uh, that such DNA existed in, in inside the company. And 3M is another example. And it's really the failure. It's the it's the 
I think we learn more from failures than from successes, but it's interesting yeah. to look back and see where companies had to make changes and had to got things wrong and then and then leveraged the learning for figuring it out. And so I think that there's uh I think that there's things that you can understand about your organization's DNA that can help you adopt uh these learning or exploration principles. And another example was uh uh from from the book was uh, Cargill. And so you know, there's a company that when they started looking at uh, the market for alternative proteins, they didn't they didn't feel like they had to jump in and go create a bunch of startups in their innovation labs. They were actually able to sit back and watch the market develop and then figure out that, hey, what we're really going to be able to bring to the table is our distribution engine that virtually nobody can touch. And uh, and then we can make our move at the right time, whether that's through acquisition or partnering or, or or some of these other ways. And so to me, there was another example where they could look and and understand what their core differentiation was, what their competitive advantage was. And so rather than, you know, kind of chasing uh, this fantasy of disruption and this fantasy of this new technology breakthrough Let's look at our DNA and our core competencies and what differentiates us. And then let's leverage that as we start to look at how we're going to create new growth uh, over the next several years. So, so let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor to this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back. I'm joined today by Brant Cooper, author of the best-selling book, Disruption Proof. We've been discussing how financial institutions, actually organizations in any industry, must continually evolve and embrace change to become future ready. So, so Brant, it is no secret that the majority of people, to the majority of people, change sucks. Um, using this as the foundation, how does leadership get organizational buy-in for concepts that could cost them their jobs? I think that uh, I think their jobs are are uh, might be lost anyway, or they might be lost if they're not able to actually start weathering the change. Because I just think this is going to be the new way of of working. Uh, I think that the disconnect often is that the leaders are demanding workers change. They demand sort of the employees adopt a new mindset rather than investing in that mindset change and part of the investment in that is that you have to align incentives and this is not just monetary but you have to align a way of working the space to work in a particular way you have to align the structure even in order to get the type of behavior that you want it's pretty well known i think it's scientifically shown that when you deal with uh sort of rote behavior, things that are done in a repetitive way, then money compensation tends to be very important. But that if you start dealing with uh, com complex issues uh, where you, you, you actually have to engage your, your 
cognitive thinking and, and problem solving and all those type of things, it's more rewarding work. And so the, the, the monetary is less important. It's still important to reach a threshold, but it's less important than the ability to work in a way that gets to exercise your creativity and your inspiration. So it's, it's kind of ironic to me that, uh, that at least I'm trying to make the case that organizations must do that with their employees. They must work with, uh, the structure and, and how you, uh, organize your work so that people get to exercise their creativity and their intelligence. I think it's ironic that that's required, but at the same time, uh, the HR policies tend to be sort of very old school command and control. No, you must right, come back right. to the office. No, you oh, must do yeah. remote work. No, you must follow this rigid policy of hybrid work. And there's there's sort of like this glaring, you know, sort of misalignment there between, uh, you know, if you actually empower your people and you let them choose, I think based in a team structure, not an individual structure, but based in a team structure, you allow them to figure out where they should be working based upon the type of work that they need to be doing. And you allow, uh, if you delegate decision-making so that teams become empowered to actually solve problems themselves, guess what you also get? You get employees that are, are more committed to the company because they feel like they're making a contribution. They get more passionate about their work because they're exercising their creativity and their inspiration. They get to have the social construct of a team that they're working with. And to be honest, in my opinion, the teams will reinforce accountability and behavior and those type of things. And so if, if companies can actually make that switch, they actually start solving a lot of the, the big quit and the resignations and the remote work. And they, right. all of those end up becoming things that are solved out of actually work, you know, creating the right work environment for people. And, uh, and so getting companies over that hump is really just remains the biggest challenge. And I think it's scary, um, but I, I think that the benefits uh, are far, far outweigh the, the, the risks. And there's now, you know, every year there's more and more organizations that are adopting those type of things so that there's even other companies that you can learn from on, and how to implement that sort of thing in your own company. You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm a big fan, as many people on the podcast that listen to podcasts know of Liz Wolverton and what they're doing at Sonovus, a, a legacy bank in Fresno. There was one in Columbus, Georgia. And the way that they integrate employees into the process of transforming the organization. And there's a trust playoff because if if you simply push down what you need to do, there's a break of the trust um, factor within an organization. On the other hand, when they want to close branches, they engage all the employees that are going to be impacted and let them know how they'll be positively impacted by this change. What ends up happening is they have a much better conversion rate of those customers to a new brand or to an, a different branch than they're used to going to, as opposed to people talking down on the organization the entire time during the process. And it, it's interesting, as you said, if, if you build that trust between employees and employers, if you show them how they are part of the future and how it benefits them upfront and truthfully, how that really works to everybody's advantage. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about digital transformation, a lot of times we talk about improving the customer experience. Well, there's also the impact of efficiency. 
Uh, there's a financial impact that that works well for organizations. How do you see this playing out as as we look at change overall, and as we get more and more towards more digital organizations that have less of the costly infrastructure, both back office and front office, to deal with? Well, so efficiency is sort of one of my favorite topics now because I think it's uh, when we were producing widgets in factories it was pretty easy to measure financial efficiency. Can you get more output for what you're putting in? And really the in is you know labor and raw materials and all these other types of things. In a digital world, it's really not quite so easy to measure that. Uh, and I think that we're trying to, by continuing, continuing to measure just that sort of financial efficiency where we're trying to you know, jam a, a square peg into a round hole. What we've lost in that story is the fi- the financial efficiency of what? So now if we're doing reorgs or we have to cut people, like to, just the layoffs that are going on, and this happens even in the tech companies, oh, you know, yeah. the companies kind of go like, oh, we're going to just do this 10% or 6% cut across the organization. Well, that's actually a pretty silly way of going about it. Maybe they think it's fair. I don't know. But if we think about it in terms of what is the efficiency of accomplishing our mission, it kind of changes that game. So if we're thinking about what what are the activities that we're doing that create value and how do we become as financially efficient as possible in creating the value that we're supposed to be creating as a business? Like if you look at, you know, I don't know, I use examples in the book like Uber or Airbnb. Right. Uber is not going to start flipping hamburgers if they think that they actually can become more financially efficient by becoming a burger joint. No, their job is to accomplish their mission, which is getting people from point A to point B or now with all of their food delivery, it's expanded. But they're they're They still have this mission that has to do with with cars. And so so if you ask the question. How do we become more financially efficient and we stop there, then what you get are standardized cuts across the organization. If, however, you say, how do we become more financially efficient in accomplishing our mission, then we're going to start looking at things a little bit more finely to understand that, hey, listen, we need to trim fat everywhere, but we don't want to cut into the muscle where the muscle is the value that we're creating. Right. And so I think that if we just apply that concept inside of our businesses, it would be a game changer. And in just a couple of examples, if if companies over the last decade or two had been saying, how do we keep our supply chain as efficient as possible while being able to accomplish our mission, then redundant supply chains may have been okay. But if we just look at financial efficiency, we're going to say the redundant supply chain Costs is overhead. Yeah. It's just yep. pure cost. And then yep. a disruption happens. And our supply chain goes by, well, now what is the loss? I mean, the losses are huge. In San Diego, we had a uh, a ransomware attack on, uh, on one of the hospital systems. And it's the same sort of thing. It's like if you ask, how do we become more financially efficient? Then redundant IT systems, training nurses on how to act in a in an analog way instead of a just purely digital way, those things would be considered overhead and just costs. 
But if you think about the financial efficiency in accomplishing our mission, which is to provide great health care to the citizens of San Diego, then maybe those decisions are like, well, no, we really should have some redundant IT systems and we should train. We should have an analog day where nurses are trained how to do these things so that when the disruptions come, like a ransomware attack or a supply chain issue, we're actually still able to provide the value that we're signed up to provide. And so I think that it would be interesting and i'm not sure wall street would completely reject it is that if we actually just redefined what we're trying to be efficient at um and and get rid of the the cuts by silo and look at how do we become more efficient at the integrated whole uh that's required in order to achieve our mission yeah, I, it, it's interesting because you look at these recent examples and there's been so much change. And you mentioned that a lot of the, lot of the layoffs have happened in the tech industry that actually was building on the future growth that they thought would be achieved. And then all of a sudden the economy goes south and they're not prepared. And as you said, are they taking these cuts, slash them across the entire board, or are they selectively doing those? So as you look and, and organizations becoming trying to become more disruption-proof, What's the most disruptive change you see on the immediate horizon? Boy, you know, I, I'm i not very good at, at predicting the future. I, I think that, uh, I think that uh, it really has to do with, I hate to be like an AI fanboy, but I think that as AI, true AI, it is kind of used as a buzzword now, but as true AI is able to tackle the extraordinary reams of data that we have, we'll start being able to find causal relationships, whereas it may be just correlation now, right? So I think that we, like, especially in healthcare, I think that we, there's a lot of guesswork involved. And I think that when we digest what's going on in these different industries, we often confuse what are the facts with what are the hypotheses about those facts. Right. But I right. just think, I think there's so much data out there. And again, I'm not really talking about all the privacy stuff, which I'm a big, I have concerns over, but there's just so much data there that if we could start drawing inferences and testing causal relationships, it really can change things in how we're treating uh, different diseases and how we're managing healthcare and and really providing a tremendous amount of value to human beings and to customers uh, in those markets. Finally, um, as I mentioned, you have a great book. I really enjoyed it, Disruption Proof. How do people hear more from you? Uh, you mentioned uh, you have a podcast coming out. You also write uh, blog posts regularly. How do how people find you? So I encourage people to reach out to me. My email address is brant at brantcooper.com. Uh, I encourage people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I do have a lot of uh, content that's flowing on, uh, that's usually posted on LinkedIn. And so I would love it if people uh, reached out and engaged with me and, and let me know who, where their uncertainty is and and see if we can't, uh, we can't uh, solve for that and, and learn how to learn how to learn again. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, you know, that engagement is how we learn. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Jim. That was a, a fun discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. 
If you enjoy what we're doing, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It helps us to continue to get great guests. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hasledge, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, transforming an organization requires strong, top-down leadership as well as ground-up behavioral change. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.